Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Coach Baseball Right podcast. I'm your host and founder of Coach Baseball Right, Steve Nicolaret. Join us as we go inside, outside, and all around baseball, discussing how to coach baseball the right way. Hello, and thanks for listening. Before I introduce our topics for today, if you have already subscribed to our podcast, thank you. If you haven't yet subscribed to the Coach Baseball Right podcast, please consider doing so by going to iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcast. Lastly, all of our Coach Baseball Right podcast and all the coaching resources I mentioned can be found at CoachBaseballRight.com. I started Coach Baseball Right about eight years ago as a central place where organizations, leagues, facilities, coaches, and parents can go to find thoughtful and comprehensive coaching resources that help transform baseball experiences and development. If you run an organization, league, or a facility, you definitely need to check out our certification programs. These certifications will help separate you from your competition. If you run a high school program, check out our certifications or our pro-level memberships. If you're coaching a team, we have a ton of great practice resources for every level, but definitely our pro-level membership is the highlight. And if you're a parent and you're looking for quality baseball instruction at an affordable price, turn to our online hitting academy or turn to our positional drills. In today's Coach Baseball Ride podcast, we visit with Matt Lyle, creator of The Hitting Vault. Matt has coached baseball and softball at many different levels of high school and college, as well as coached in the professional ranks with the Chicago White Sox. He is best known as the creator of The Hitting Vault and the Internet's most followed baseball and softball coach. Sit back and enjoy our conversation with Matt Lyle. Hi, everybody. We're here with Matt Lyle, founder of The Hitting Vault. Matt, th- thanks so much for being on our podcast. Uh, thanks for having me on, Steve. I appreciate it. Hey, Matt, our Coach Baseball Right program is all about helping organizations, coaches, parents transform baseball experiences and developments. We started the podcast to allow our listeners to hear different perspectives on coaching baseball the right way. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get going. Hey, Matt, give us yep. uh, a little bit of a background on uh, on your baseball journey. Well, I started playing baseball at a very young age. My mom actually said that I would swing my bottle around as a as an infant uh, playing. So for me, baseball has been something that I just grew up with playing every day. And, and uh, you know, I actually would buy score books at the sporting goods store and keep score of the games on TV at probably five, six years old. So uh, and I played and I grew up playing baseball, high school, and uh, tried to play in college a little bit and just uh, and played some summer ball, independent ball, and just couldn't really get onto that dream of playing professional baseball. And then I got into college coaching, and I mean, uh, into coaching very early uh, as I was finishing up in college. And I was a head varsity baseball coach at like 23 years old. And I coached in high school for a long time. I coached in college for a little bit, uh, NAIA and Division three. And then in 2012, I switched over to softball, and I coached. Uh, in the Pac-12 at or- the University of Oregon, and I coached softball uh, for about seven years at different levels, from Division One to Division Two, and NAI again, and back into the SEC. 
and then jumped back into baseball coaching uh, in 2018, coaching at the University of Missouri and then with the Chicago White Sox. So my journey's been uh, a long one. I've been coaching about 20 years now, and and I've been in the game for you know over 40 years now. And so um, you know it's been a fun it's been a fun journey uh, at all kinds of different levels for sure. Hey Matt, you have a wonderful uh, program, an online venture, the Hitting Vault. Can you articulate kind of what that is for any of our listeners that might not be familiar with it? Yeah, so the Hitting Vault was designed, the idea I had about five years ago was that uh, there are a lot of parents out there who are buying private lessons for their kids and hitting and are feeling frustrated with not getting great instruction. And um, I decided, hey, let's build a product that parents can use to give instruction to their parents that's really simple and easy to digest no matter you know, what level of uh, knowledge the parent has or kid has. Uh, and create a system for, you know, hitting development that just is a lot cheaper than spending money every week with a lesson. And and uh, so I wanted to create this product that I thought would help parents and kids uh, get better at hitting and uh, really help coaches, too, uh, for developing for their kids for practice and for individual development. And it, like I said, it started about five years ago and has continued to grow and grow into a uh, li- library of over a hundred videos and drills and a lot of other just supplemental resources and actually a really good community of coaches uh, that help as well. Hey, how did you actually? I mean, you have this wonderful product and and a lot of people use it. How did you grow it? How did you get it out there? So, well, I think the mistake that a lot of people make when they start into business or ideas and trying to sell online is that they spend all their time developing the product first and then trying to sell it and then realize they don't really have anybody that's following them to purchase it. So what I decided in 2013 was to spend uh, a year on uh, Facebook and social media just sharing all of my secrets, everything I know about hitting and give it away for free and try to help uh, help as many parents and players as I could. And just by answering, you know, Q&As and I, I just wanted to provide as much value as possible. So I spent all of my time trying to build a, a following in the hopes that eventually I would have a product to sell them. And so um, it kind of built like that, like that. And so it kind of culminated for me in 2014, near the end of 2014, I decided to launch the Hitting Vault at the same time that I built up, built up about 100,000 followers at the time. And uh, also, I was a, kind of the featured speaker at the National Softball Convention on hitting. So all those three things happened, and I launched uh, the Hitting Vault the day after I spoke at the National Convention, which kind of you know uh, catapulted the Hitting Vault in a sense. And then I've just continued to have that strategy for the last six years is try to provide as much value to people as possible uh, from, from in the demographics of three people, parents, coaches, and players. And the reason I chose those three demographics is because, you know, th- those are the people that I am or, you know, that I have been or the people that, you know, I come in contact with every day. Now, I'm a parent and a coach. Uh, I work with players every day. So I figured, you know, I will share anything I can that's valuable to those uh, three demographics and and I just really have focused as much attention and time as I can on, on doing that. And in the meantime, it has really helped me to build uh, a brand and a business as well. What, uh, what does the future hold for the Hitting Vault? What's, what's coming down the road? 
we're getting ready to film some more uh, drills and swing movement uh, videos. So we're, we're getting ready to do a bunch more videos. Um, that's probably the biggest thing, and, and continue to build out uh, resources within the vault on on helping hitters. I think we're going to start getting into a lot more of how to use data and technology uh, for swing development. I think that's, the, that's something we're working on right now as well. And just helping uh, a lot of parents and coaches and kids who are starting to use bat sensors, you know, how to use those bat sensors to for swing development, how to interpret the data. I think that's um, also kind of the next area that we're going into. And I think if, on top of that, we'll, uh, we'll start bringing in more hitting instructors and more voices and, and more value in, in areas of expertise like vision, uh, training and pitch recognition and, uh, you know, mobility and stability screenings and things like that. So I think, you know, can just continuing to uh, find ways to help hitting development, I think we're just going to continue to press into that. It sounds really exciting. Yeah, it's been, it's, it's been really exciting. It's been a fun journey. I said, I've been very blessed uh, in this, in this journey and, and, uh, you know, I, I can't, I don't, I don't have a single complaint. What's the most challenging part of uh, of the of the program for you? What what is it that you find maybe most difficult? I think for most people, uh, they want immediate results, and I think that for some people, they do get those results, you know, pretty quickly. And for others, you know, uh, the idea for athletes, you know, I think the term that we hear a lot these last few years is trust the process. And people, you know, they want to trust the process. You got to believe in it. It's going to be a long term. It's a marathon. And I think for most people, they kind of believe that. They're willing to do it. They're willing to trust the process. But for me, the difference, the challenge that I have seen is that the people that have success in something that's really difficult, like hitting and 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 getting on to the next level, is the best. People, the people who get through it are the people who love the process, not just trust the process. And to me, loving the process, you know, for for a 12 or 13 year old boy or girl, loving the process means that mom and dad doesn't don't tell you to get off the iPad or your iPhone or technology to go work on your swing. You actually go do that without them, and they, you love doing that. I, I'm the oldest of seven kids, and my brother, who is 10 years younger than me, who I, who I actually got to coach in high school a little bit and went on to play college ball, he would wake up in high school every morning at 5.30 in the morning, and he would go hit in the uh, in the backyard and off into a screen for about 30, 45 minutes, and he would lift weights for 30, 45 minutes, and then get in the shower and get ready for school every day. And no one told him that. It wasn't like a, it was a conversation that our parents had or I had with him. Hey, man, you should really do this hour workout every morning. He was driven to do that. He loved getting better. He wanted to get better. So to me, the challenge that I see is that most people, they want immediate results. Two, they kind of trust the process. They're willing to do the work, uh, and, they're, and, they're, and they're not really seeing that result. And I think the people that have the most success are the ones who really dive into it and just love it. And they, they love even the boring parts, you know, uh, of doing it and uh, things that people would say are boring, like, for example, the stride drill and working on your stride, you know, and not swinging. Any kind of drill that has to do with not swinging the bat, for most kids, they're like, this is boring. This isn't that fun. I'm not actually hitting. Uh, and to me, the hitters that get better a lot, they are willing to do those things. They actually enjoy it. And they see how doing these boring things pay off in the long run. And, uh, you know, I just think that's something, you know, I'm a father. I've got five kids. 
you know, it's it's a struggle for kids. And, and I think every generation, especially this generation, you know, iPads and, and iPhones and screen time and YouTube, there's a lot of things pulling kids in uh, directions uh, away from stuff like that. Whereas when you and I were kids, you know, we didn't have those things. And so for us, maybe it was easier to go out and play in the in the front yard or backyard wiffle ball and home run derby and, and all the games that we played every day because maybe we didn't have as many options as before. So let's uh let's kinda change gears just a little bit. Um let's suppose that you had a new student and uh first lesson. What would the most important concept be when you started on that very first lesson with this new student? What would you try to accomplish? The biggest thing that I would do is spend my time just assessing the, the hitter. You know what I mean? Spend, you know, kind of getting to know them a little bit. To me, as a if I was a private instructor or a coach at a high school or college or anywhere for that matter, you know, building some relational equity uh, and, and building some trust and getting to know the person at the first goes a long way to them wanting to receive information from you. If you just come out of the gates telling them what they're doing wrong and they need to do the X, Y, and Z – you know, I think that's not really well received. So I want to spend some time getting to know them a little bit and how they can tick and try to start building that trust. At the same time, I want to spend that spend that time assessing them, like evaluating them, whether it's a movement screening, it's uh, getting their, you know, bat sensor readings or their batted ball data off the head tracks or, you know, whatever I use to, to measure. I want to spend that time measuring them and then sitting down and saying, okay, here's what I think is the most important things for you to work on. Let's build a hierarchy of needs, uh, if you will. And, you know, for parents and kids, I wouldn't phrase it that way, but I would say, you know what, I think this is, you know, this is where you're at. This is where I think you need to, you know, go towards. And here's just a a general idea of how we're going to get there and give them, you know, one thing to start working on uh, to start building that. So that's what I would do in that first session. When when you uh, sit down with that kid and you you get some measurements, some metrics, what which ones are the most important to you? Uh, to me, the the number one and number two are exit velocity and bat speed. You know, I want to know you know how hard they can hit the ball, uh, how much force are they generating, and uh, you know how fast can they swing the bat. I would say those are the two I would start with because for most youth kids, you know those are those are some of the struggles we're having as we go up the 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 age of the kid and the athlete, um, it, I think it changes a little bit more towards uh, approach angle and their swing path. But for the most part, uh, doing damage is king, and exit velocity trumps, you know, almost every other metric there is out there. You've got to be able to do damage. Um, you also have to be on time and, and, and a lot of other things that involve the hitting. But like, I need to build that engine first a little bit. And so for me, if I have a young student and I, I want somewhere to start, if I, if I only had any, only one metric to go off of, you know, tracking their exit velocity would be the one thing that I would do. And I would build onto that with bat speed and then continue to kind of build onto that with things like attack angle and, and bat path and, and a bunch of others. You, um, you talk about adjusting to the low pitch, um, doing that with posture you know a, a lot of kids will will hit a pitch um, at their knees by dropping their hands but yeah. you talk about it uh, adjusting to that pitch with your posture uh, can you explain that to the listeners yeah so 
the best hitters in baseball and softball, when they get to their launch position, which is the, the time after they've taken their stride, their, their, some people will call it heel strike. When they get to that position, the best hitters have a posture of about 10 to 25 degrees bent over towards the plate. And so if you can imagine, if you're completely bent over the plate in a, in a looking like a, a chair, you'd be at 90 degrees. And, and so, uh, the best hitters are in that kind of 10 to 20 degree range of being bent over the plate, 10 to 25 degrees, somewhere in that range. And the hitters who are above 30 degrees bent over, there's a whole other set of problems in there from a posture standpoint. But for the most part, they're in this position. As the ball is coming in, the best hitters will change their shoulders uh, posture, meaning up and down their shoulders, and their hips, they're hinging at their hips and their and their torso the combination of those two things to match the to match the plane of this pitch. You know, their their brain saying, Hey, this is a low pitch, hey, this is a high pitch. And based on how you know, based on that information is by how much I'm going to bend my shoulders and how and how much I'm going to tilt uh over the plate. And so by doing so, I'm um, just more efficient my body's more efficient getting to the ball. And um, my hands stay relatively in my chest area. So, you know, my, the hands will kind of stay between the chest and the belly button. They'll, for most hitters, some of them you know, will drop a little bit and, and some will, will not as much. But by allowing the body to turn, uh, it just allows it to be more efficient than it does, like you said, a hitter whose hands you drop. And, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was coaching college softball in the SEC, we had a, we had a player who – would drop her hands at heel strike, and that was the first move she had. And so anytime you threw a ball above her waist, she could not hit her or she was going to pop it up or she was going to, uh, you kind of foul it back. Uh, she could only hit balls, you know, between her hips, between her, you know, belly button and her knees because she dropped her hands. And so we worked endlessly throughout that year to try to get her to learn how to do that to allow her to be able to hit pitches, in, you know, up and down and not just in that one spot. And, you know, I can tell you there's, there are some major league players that still, you know, do that and are str- they struggle with the, up, with the high pitch because of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that for some of our hitters, they, they struggle with that and we try to find ways to, uh, to fix that. But does that help in the description of posture? Absolutely. No, it's very – it's exactly where I wanted to go with it. Um, tell me this. When – when you work with the kids, you work with college kids, you work with professional hitters, what's the most common hitting flaw or concern that you see? The biggest thing that I see, number one, is that when hitters get to their launch position, heel strike, that they are first moved to their to the ball is with their shoulders or with their hands. I'll tell you, in my experience, I've been in softball for seven years, I've been in baseball for a lot longer. Softball players, for the most part, will attack the ball with their shoulders uh, rotating or their shoulders turning. And baseball players will attack the ball with their hands pushing forward uh, more so. And they, so that's pretty generalization. But those that, that th- those two things are the biggest things that we see in regards to um, the, the patterns that we see badly. And I will tell you that the best hitters, the best hitters in the game, their pelvis or t- and their, their hips, these – they turn first, and then the torso, and then the hands. Uh, and there's always going to be exceptions to the rules, but but generally speaking, the best hitters do that. And so I spend most of my time trying to train 
pelvis and torso separation uh, because and disassociation, we call it, uh, it's for hitters to be able to attack the ball in a better sequence. Uh, and I would say that is the biggest problem that we see is kids, uh, you know, kids take their hands to the ball first and they don't use their body very well. And I think back in the day, a lot of coaches would say, you know, this hitter doesn't use their lower half. Uh, uh, or I hear a coach say, you know, just she doesn't use her lower half very well. Well, it's the same. That's They're saying the same thing. That what's happening is they're, they get the heel strike and their shoulders take over or their hands take over instead of their pelvis. Uh, and, and so um, I would say, you know, that is the biggest thing that we, I come across. And, and to be really clear for our, our, our listeners, you're talking about in the swing when the front heel goes down, the hip, the front hip will begin to move for a right-handed hitter, tart, short stop, but the shoulder, the front shoulder stays home. It's really not going to move together with the hip. Is that correct? Correct. And I would say it's, it's, it's your first move to the ball. So I, I would say your first move. And I, 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 the way that I explain it to players, uh, that really helps them more so than talking about like the front hip or the back hip to make it really simple is their belly button. Like your belly button's the center and, it, and it, you can't move your belly button without moving your hips. So for most, uh, hitters, if I tell them, Hey, it was your first move, I want your belly button to turn towards the pitcher and, you know, shortstop and, and attack the ball from there. I think a lot of times that's an easier cue to understand than it is, you know, talking about the front hip or back hip. Uh, but yes, the first move to the ball you will see. And I will tell you, you know, the, the guys who do it best at the major league level are guys like Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, Christian Yelich. I mean, there's, there are so many to do it, but those are top of my mind. If you, if you're trying to look for hitters that, you know, to do a really good job of that. Uh, those are some of the hitters that come on, come into my mind right away. And I, and I think for most of the youth hitters that as the belly button would go, um, so would their front shoulder. They would go at the same time, and we're talking about the clear separation between the two. Yes. Let's talk just for a second um, uh, about the front leg. And this is, you know, for this is really for the listeners uh, – who have, you know, it's kind of an advanced idea, I guess, but uh, in in-pitch adjustment, you talk about front leg adjustability and and the, the front leg sinking just a bit, I guess, to buy time uh, for the hitter when he's looking fastball and he has to, say, two strikes, looking fastball. He has to, has to protect and he gets an off speed. Talk a little bit about that front leg sink or front leg adjustability. So when a hitter gets to their launch position and they get to their heel strike, their front knee should be nice and bent. Uh, it allows their pelvis to turn uh, without their shoulders or hands coming forward. And so for a hitter, as soon as that front knee begins to firm up and get uh, firm, their hands are going to come forward. Like it's, it's almost impossible to lock up your uh, front knee and keep your shoulders and hands back. So, when that happens, you are committed to that pitch. And so when you get to launch position and your body recognizes, your eyes recognize this is a changeup or this is an off-speed pitch, by focusing on maintaining that bent front knee and feeling the sink down into that front leg and, and staying into your legs gives you that few milliseconds of time before your hands and shoulders have to come forward and swing. So, um, you know, and, and what's funny is we're talking about the highest level of Major League Baseball. I mean, we're, we're talking about milliseconds, like literally milliseconds. So 
you know, I think a lot of people, they start thinking, wow, man, sink into your front leg and bend down or, you know, maybe if the pitch pitch is coming 40 miles an hour, do you have that much time? But, you know, it's a really quick process. And, but, and from just being able to feel that bent front knee staying a little bit, a little bit longer, pushing down into that front heel a little bit more allows me to buy that time where my hands and my shoulders don't come forward. And so, Front leg adjustability allows us to still hit, make damage, and and make contact on off-speed pitches uh, without sacrificing too much. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Hey, let's go a little bit into pitch recognition. Um, let's talk a little bit about that uh, and maybe how how we could put this into uh, some type of training. I mean, there's software out there now, of course. Uh, and maybe we could do it without software in some type of batting practice technique. What what is it that you like your hitters to do to to get good practice at pitch recognition if you don't have the software? So I would say the sophomore the software is awesome if you have the ability to do to get the the ones that are out there. To me, you hit and game sense are the best ones. But if you don't. The best way to do it is, number one, the easiest way is for coaches to put their players in uh, pitchers' bullpens. And you can protect them with a screen, with a helmet, however you want to do it, but just seeing more pitches. And so, you know, if you have a high school team and the pitchers are throwing bullpens, work your hitters into those bullpens where they just stand there and track and verbally say yes, yes, no, call ball and strike, call high, low, you know, have some type of verbal uh, thing. And then what, what I like to do is, is I like to give a player a bat in that situation, find a broken bat or saw off everything but the handle, and you can even have the hitter swing in that bullpen. So, you know, you protect them in the bullpen, they've got a handle in their hands, and they can step and swing and, so, and, not, and not affect the pitcher in their bullpen. You know what I mean? The pitcher's, not, the pitcher's protected, they're not going to hit the ball. So that would be number one, and I, and I would tell you that, you know, over the course of an off season, or in a, you know, if you're a high school team and you start practice in February, don't play till March. You can get some of your hitters 500 to 600, you know, tracking pitches each, which is a huge advantage versus your opponents by just getting that them that. Um, the other thing uh, that we do a lot of is uh, kind of what we call a net occlusion, uh, and we we will have a pitcher throw into a net and they're protected in a big square net and throw at the hitter, and the hitter will hit off of a tee, uh, trying to recognize those pitches or call out those pitches. And so a pitcher could throw into the screen. They're protected. On the other side is a hitter, hitter hitting off the tee, and they might, you know, they could yell out curveball, change up. They could yell out high, low, and, and just trying to – and that's just another way to recognize live pitching by adding a swing to it. And so, uh, you know, I think there's lots of other ways, but I think those are two ways that we do a lot of. So if a kid's looking for a, you know, he sets the tee for the pitch he's looking at, but then he has to decide if the pitch out of the hand is going to be that pitch. And if so, Correct. he reacts and hits, and if not, yeah. he'll take the pitch. Perfectly. And so yeah, gotcha. that's a great example. So let's say you wanted to work on low and inside pitches, and you're the coach on the other side of the net, and, you know, you got to give them a, at least five to ten feet so they can see some ball flight. But, you know, I mean, you could mix up, high pitches with low pitches and, and again like say hey take i want you to take the high pitch i want you to swing the low pitch and you know just just trying to to train um them them being able to see that i think uh is huge so let's 
let kind of jump on that idea and take it into batting practice for a minute. I I watch kids take batting practice when I when I'm in a hitting facility or what have you, and, and for the most part, the kids are just swinging. And I would like to see batting practice more of about choices. Um, tell me how you would how how can we make batting practice better for the kids to make it more game like. So I would tell you that every batting practice that I've had in the last three to four years at, at every level, uh, every swing is tracked. So we have either a team manager or a coach or, you know, someone in the rotation of stations. They're going to track uh, those BPs. So let's say it's a free-swinging free swinging BP. You know, they, they can, it's just like do damage BP. And so – uh, for softball, it could be, you know, four points for a home run, three points if it hits off the wall, uh, two points if it rolls to the wall, and one point if it hits the grass on the line drive. And you get 10 swings, you track it all, and at the end of the BP, it's like, Susie, you are our best hitter of the day, you got 45 points. And so it just it creates that station to be really focused. And you can do the same thing, again, like we were talking about, we can do the same thing with off-speed pitches, uh, if you have a hit tracks or a rap soto, you could have. We we do it sometimes where um, it's a, it's a line drive BP. You have to hit balls between ten and twenty degrees launch angle. And if we have a, you know we have a hit tracks in the batting cages, we know so that that would be you know another way. Uh, same thing like like you're talking about. If you don't have that stuff and you've got a youth team, you know you could say. You know, this round, this round is going to be. We want ball hit this way or that way, and just, you know, whatever you want to measure, measure it. And at the end of practice or the end of the session, you know, call out the people who do really well, and you know, create that environment because you know, little Johnny is going to pay attention to what you're measuring a lot more if you're actually measuring it versus, all right, guys, this is an opposite field round and you just do it, you know, most kids are just going to, you know, do whatever you say. But if you said you get two points for every time you do this, you know, kids are much more driven to actually follow through on what your what the expectation is. So that competition in the drill because you're going to post the points, that, that sort of is the motivation for the kids to really, really focus in. Correct. Hey, uh, let's talk about youth baseball for a second. What um, What's the state of the youth baseball today? Uh, what are your major concerns? I think the biggest concern that I'm seeing is just that parents are buying into the, um, you know, division one and professional, um, you know, they're, they're, they're really buying into the dream of that. And I don't have any problem with players buying into the dream of that, but I, I, I need to see it driven from the kid and not the parent. And I, I think there are times that you push your kid and encourage them and, you know, get them to do things like chores. Like, you know, you've got to do your chores. But I think that I, I'm seeing a lot of parents really pushing their kids to do X, Y, and Z. And maybe the kids have some early success in their little league. And the parents, they, I think, I, I just feel like the parents should get swept up in the uh, idea of, you know, division one. And so, or whatever their dream is, professional baseball. And so to me, I feel like, uh, you know, we've taken the game away from the kids a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, I, you don't see kids playing sandlot ball, wiffle ball. 
uh, you know, getting just getting together after school and, and going down to the park and playing strikeout. I, I just don't see that uh, uh, very much. I see everything being organized by parents uh, from lessons to everything else. And, and I'm totally fine with that as long as the kid actually enjoys doing that thing. And um, so that's, that's my only, that's my probably biggest concern right now is um, just parents getting a little too overly enthusiastic about the, uh, the goals and what, and what, why we play the game. You know, I, I posted on social media the other day, a post from another coach talking about the point of high school sports. And one of the problems that I'm seeing is that parents, uh, they 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 get they understand the development side, the individual development, player development, they they the travel ball stuff, they 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 understand a lot of that. Uh, what they don't understand is that like team sports, uh, the 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 reason why it's so great at every level is that you learn teamwork, you learn how to communicate, you learn all these life lessons dealing with adversity, and so if you only played on a showcase team in high school and and only went to showcases and, and you played on a travel ball team that, that went to showcases that don't keep score. And you're not, you're not getting to, you're not getting to learn a lot of these lessons. So kids are getting to college, even if their skills get them to college, they have no idea how to play the game or how to be a good teammate uh, and those things. And so I'm, I'm a little worried that we're getting caught up into, um, you know, how to get my kid to the college level with, with overshadowing all the great things that, reasons we play team sports uh the life lessons and the, the person development versus the you know skill development very very well said um what do you expect out of a coach uh, when dealing with your kids what would you like to see i'd like to see energy enthusiasm uh those would be the biggest things uh, you know my my son's playing soccer right now and when i go to watch him practice you know, I would love to see a coach that is organized and engaging. I would say the biggest mistake that I see that drives me crazy when I look at the at the t-ball to like eight-year-old level is you have dads who are willing to dads and moms who are willing to volunteer, but you've got one kid hitting, you've got nine kids shagging, and they just rotate through this thing. It's like if I'm a six to seven-year-old kid. This is the most boring practice I've ever been to. I don't like this sport. I don't want to play it anymore. So my expectation of uh, coaches who coach my kids is, you know, be engaging, make it, make it fun. Like I want my kids to look forward to going to practice and make it organized and keep things moving so that everybody is involved, everyone's engaged, and you walk away from that hour going, wow, we got so much done. We got, and everyone's moving around, and it was a fun experience. Um, Versus someone who's again, you know, not organized. They don't have a practice plan. They didn't do any research on like, how can they, you know, I, I make this practice better, and uh, and they don't, and they don't have any, really, and they don't have any relationship with the players either. They show up and and do the work and then leave. So uh, those are the things that I look for. You know, there's one question I I forgot to ask, and I want to make sure I ask this. You know, we have both baseball and softball folks that will be listening to this podcast, and you have worked in both worlds. And uh, I want your take on um, the swing. You know, there there are some softball people who think the swing is different. Um, and I have lots of people I've talked with that 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 say, hey, the baseball swing, the softball swing, you know, 
pretty much the same thing. What's your take? Yeah, the swing is no different. And 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 I don't say this from an ego standpoint, but I, I, I say this that I've coached every level of softball at the college softball level, from the Pac-12 to the SEC, NAIA, D2, uh, small D1. I've been, so I've been at all those levels, while at the same time working with a lot of major league players uh, in the off season. So, you know, I would tell you that I've trained those players exactly the same, and my softball teams have had more success than my baseball players to, to a degree. So I would say the swing is exactly the same swing from a movement standpoint. Uh, I would say that the biggest arguments against it um, are, one, the rise ball, uh, and Understanding that if you're a college coach and you've been around good rise balls, you understand that there's about 1% of the pitchers in the world that can throw a low rise that stays in the zone consistently. And when that, when that happens, you're right. It's a difficult pitch to hit. Just like it's difficult to hit a 102-mile-an-hour fastball by a Rolls Chapman at the top of the zone. And so, you know, uh, I would, those things are difficult, but they're very, very rare um, and I would tell you that 95% of rise balls at the college level, because I've, I've, I've tracked pitches, I've worked with pitcher, uh, teams, you know, 95% of those pitches are out of the zone. So it's, it, rise ball is more of an approach issue than a swing issue. And then I think some of the pushback we get is that the actual pitch plane, so when the pitch comes in on a baseball, it does come in a little bit steeper, and we want to match that plane. And so the softball pitch coming in is a little bit flatter on average, um, but it's such a negligible, negligible amount that you wouldn't try to adjust your approach angle by one or two degrees because of that. And, and if we have hitters that are literally, you know, trying to adjust their approach angle by one degree because of this, I mean, they are hitters that have mastered everything else that's uh, about hitting from swing movements to vision to tracking. I mean, there's so many – other things are so much higher on the list that that would never be a concern for me. So all I have to say is, in my experience, working at both levels, at the highest levels, there's absolutely no difference between a softball hitter swing and a baseball player swing. Hey, Matt, thanks uh, so much for all your hard work with the vault and bringing some outstanding tools to uh, baseball coaches and players and parents. And, and uh, thank you so much for being part of our podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Steve. I really appreciate it. Wow. That was a lot of fun talking with Matt Lyle, creator of the Hitting Vault. We got to hear a little bit about his background and his journey with all of his different coaching opportunities. Matt told us how the Hitting Vault was created and gave us some of the future ideas that they have in developing the Hitting Vault. His take on important metrics like exit speed and how he approaches working with new players or new students. Matt talked about trusting the process versus loving the process. Basically, he broke that down into having to tell your kid to go ahead and work on his drills or kids that love doing their drills so much they just go out on their own and work on it without being told or prompted by their parents. One of the things I want to call your attention to is the concern that Matt talked about with parents buying into the concept that games are for the kids in terms of their own uh, showcase opportunities and not learning the team concept. That's an important thing. Matt also talked about what he looked for uh, in a youth coach, you know, someone that's organized and 
keeps practice moving, teaches fundamentals, and makes it fun for the kids. Really, what outstanding interview. Had a lot of fun talking with Matt, um, and I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast as well. Hey, thanks so much for joining us, and I want to ask everyone to please share our link for this Coach Baseball Right podcast on Facebook and Twitter.